Hello, everybody. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I am Rico Galliano. And recently, it occurred to us that we've been rude hosts. So true. Y- you see, we've been throwing these audio dinner parties for like two years now. And never once have we given you the opportunity to chip in so much as a bottle of wine. A ghastly oversight on our part. Very uncouth. But one we've remedied. Here's what you can do. Head to your local wine shop, select a bottle of wine that you'd like to bring to our dinner party, Mm -hmm. write down the price, and then go to dinnerpartydownload.org and donate that exact amount. It's very simple. We also enjoy extremely rare and expensive scotch. Oh, that must be you. Welcome to the party. Here's your icebreaker. What do you get when you cross a brown chicken with a brown cow? Brown chicken, brown cow. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your next dinner party. Our icebreaker this week came from Alex Axels of Evil Cohen, (laughs) co-author of a new book about roller derby. It's called Down and Derby. Oh, I get that. I get that. Nice. Coming up, musician Noah Lennox of Animal Collective, 36 equals 41, a non-wax tax, munchie-inducing munchies, and the war on drugs. But first... Time for small talk. So, Rico, this week the news was filled with silver linings. All right, examples. Okay. Please. Uh, You probably heard about the pastor in Florida who vowed to protest religious extremism by being an extremist (laughs) and burning a pile of Korans. Nice. Silver lining... Publishers take heart. Books still matter. Oh, it's a a victory for the literate, (laughs) actually. All right, here's another one. Our economy's in trouble, but we spent the whole week arguing about whether to extend tax breaks for multimillionaires. Sure. Silver lining? America's not heartless. We really care. Of course. About rich people. Hug a billionaire, America. Stockholm syndrome. And finally, this week, BP released a report on its own spill, and surprise, spread the blame. Hmm. Silver lining? The report didn't destroy the ocean. Hey, there is that. (laughs) That's right. For some lesser-known headlines, we turn to our colleagues at Marketplace. Stacey Vanek-Smith, senior reporter for Marketplace. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, Brendan, we're fatter than we think we are. (laughs) That's not fat, that's storage. Right. Um, There's an article in Esquire magazine that looked at pant sizes. Everybody from Calvin Klein to Gap is basically putting smaller sizes on their pants than the pants actually are. And the worst was Old Navy, which said that a 41-inch pant was a 36. Couldn't they avoid this problem if they took a cue from Starbucks and instead of using numbers, they just named their sizes after just Italian words? Fenty pants! <laughs> you could supersize them. A khaki chino. Matt Berger, senior web producer, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, Arthur Sulzberger Jr., the publisher of the New York Times, admitted this week that the New York Times won't be printed on paper at some point in the future. Which is, as a journalist, I've been actually following this. That's a big deal for the newspaper industry. The irony is that I was riding the bus reading this story on my droid smartphone. (laughs) It's like, no duh, Sulzberger. Though I will say, if they stop printing the paper, what are my kids going to do with all that silly putty? Adrian Hill, Marketplace sustainability reporter, what's your story? The McDonald's Happy Meal that doesn't mold. The eternal happiness meal? Absolutely. There's a photographer in New York bought a Happy Meal more than 150 days ago, and she's been taking pictures, and it looks exactly the same as it did when she got it. No mold, no nothing? There's fries, there's a burger. It looks precisely the same as it did 150 days ago. So this is like good news. I could include some Happy Meals in my earthquake kit, and uh, I'll have a little silly toy to play with when I'm in my shelter. As long as you got enough water to counter the sodium, you'll be just fine. And now, time for cocktails. 
This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened this week in history and then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a tasty meatball swimming in a marinara sauce laced with booze. <laughs> Yum. Otherwise known as a Bloody Mary. I Other, think. Otherwise known as Saturday night. <laughs> First, the history this week back in 1698, Russian Tsar Peter the Great enacted one of the oddest taxes ever. We doubt your dinner guests will know what it was. Thanks to our friend Michelle Philippi, you're about to. Peter the Great tried to change the face of Russia. Literally. It all began when Peter took a tour of Europe. In Holland, he learned shipbuilding. In Germany, he learned to wipe his lips with a dinner napkin. Peter fell in love with Western culture. Surely, this was the way of the future. So when he got back home, Peter greeted his nobleman with a Western-style hug, then whipped out a razor and cut off their beards. Western men were clean-shaven, he said. Russians should be too. Problem was, Russians really dug their beards. Aristocrats and the devoutly religious grew them down to their chests. So to get everyone on board, Peter imposed a beard tax. You could keep your whiskers if you paid the state 100 rubles. He posted guards at city gates to make sure the unshaven andied up. The tax never brought in much cash, and when Peter died, the tax went with him. But the war on beards continued elsewhere. Margaret Thatcher made every member of her cabinet shave. And Walt Disney outlawed beards for Disneyland workers. Animatronic Abe Lincoln excluded. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. On the line is Ken Biberai of the famed Russian Tea Room in New York City. Ken, you heard the story. What drink does it inspire you to make? Yeah, we actually found this drink on one of the menus from the 1940s. And what's it called? Rasputin, obviously inspired by Rasputin himself and his beard. Oh, that's right. Rasputin had an enormous beard. Apparently, he was not affected by the tax. No, no, no. And and it's made with the most popular uh, liquor that we have here, which is obviously vodka. So uh, how, how do you make this thing? Take me through it step by step. Well, you got some Frangelico. Gives you a little hypnotic scent. And also Frangelico, supposedly made by a monk. Rasputin, the mad monk of Russia. You see that? You're making all kinds of connections, Rico. I'm telling you, buddy. Come on down. <laughs> And then you uh, you have it with Czar's Gold vodka that you mix it with. Czar's Gold, of course. What? How much of that? Oh, uh, we usually do, you know, not a fifty-fifty, but the Czar's Gold would be about a third. And that's it? Yeah, that on the rocks. You shake it up. Man, a hundred percent liquor. You should serve it with a garnish of a razor to cut the hair off your chest. <laughs> it helps with the beard, right? <laughs> sure, and for the beard. So, Rico, you know, in listening to that, I'm thinking a beard tax would never happen in this country. It does seem a little discriminatory. Well, maybe, but but I think it will never happen as long as Ben Bernanke is head of the Federal Reserve. <laughs> I mean, we might have a full head of hair tax, but never a beard tax. <laughs> Don't put the bearded in charge of your economy. <laughs> Paul Krugman wouldn't endorse it either. That's true. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, you can submit your tax proposals to us at our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor is Noah Lennox. He's a member of the experimental pop band Animal Collective. Their last album was named one of the best of the decade. He's also the sole member of Panda Bear. Here's a clip from Panda Bear's song, Bros. So, Noah, what's striking about your music is that it plays at the margins of pop. I mean, it's still experimental, yet it doesn't feel alienating like some of that music often does. 
And I'm wondering if that's like a sweet spot you consciously aim for. A little bit. I feel like what excites me about listening to music is when there's kind of a weird mixture of the familiar and the unfamiliar or the alien, you know? I feel like that's always what I'm shooting for. How do you begin writing your songs? Like, wh- where do they come from? These days, I mean, it was a conscious decision to try to write songs on a guitar and focus more on sort of elaborate chord changes, um, whereas with the last group of songs I worked on, I was using these samplers, and all those songs started as me just kind of randomly trying out little snippets or loops of sound and seeing how they work together. There's always so much stuff going on in your songs. There's like found sound, there's chants. It's really eclectic. Where do you get your ideas and sounds from? I worked at a record store for a long time, and we would just, you know, be constantly listening to music. And it was a store called Other Music in New York that specialized in maybe some lesser kind of known forms of music. So I feel like that's where I really developed kind of a vocabulary as far as more peculiar types of music goes. And I feel like my music is just a weird rebuilding of all that stuff, you know? And other music, for those who don't know, is like ground zero for record geek culture in New York. I always worked up in the little attic up there. I I just did like data entry for the system there. So pretty much every CD or whatever that came into the shop, I was there putting a price point on it. They they tried to put me on the floor, but I'm I guess I'm not too good with people. So you're not too good with people yet. You're about to play in front of thousands of people right now. Well, yeah, but that's more like I'm kind of doing my thing, and people are witnessing that. I'm not actually. I guess it is a form of uh, talking to people, but kind of like more like what people watching you do database work as opposed to you having to one on one entertain them. It's definitely a, a way of communicating with people that I'm a little more comfortable with. All right, so we have two standard questions on our show, and the first one is. What question are you tired of being asked in interviews? One that I do get asked a lot is, why, why do you live in Lisbon? And it's kind of a long story, so that one is, I'm a little tired of answering. And that's Lisbon, Portugal, where you live with your wife and kids. Why do you think people are so fascinated by that? Personally, I'm just jealous that I don't live in Lisbon. <laughs> I would assume just because not everybody does it. It's not like a super common thing. Well, our second question is, tell us something we don't know, either about you or maybe about the world at large, uh, before I was a musician, like all I cared about was sports. You were kind of a jock? I wouldn't say I was a jock, but my older brother was also just all about sports. I feel like through competing with him, I kind of developed this almost like obsession with competition. I really, really like to compete. You seem like a really laid back dude, though. I'm not when I'm playing something. <laughs> playing music? Music is, is a space that I don't really have those kind of feelings. But yeah, one thing, uh, I'm definitely kind of obsessed at this point with European soccer. There's a really massive team in Lisbon. It's kind of like the team of the country in a way. Um, You got the fever? Oh yeah, big time. Oh, he sounds like a very cool dude. He was, but you know, I don't know if you caught this, I'm a little concerned that jocks have infiltrated music. I mean, it's like the wedgie free zone of high school (laughs) has been infiltrated. First gym class, now indie rock concerts. Is there nowhere meek hipsters can live without fear? What next? LeBron James and skinny jeans? I don't think that's possible, actually. <laughs> Probably not. Folks, uh, there's nothing to fear from our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org.
So we heard from our guest of honor. Now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we learn about food. So Brendan, I don't know about you, but for me, the worst part of being sick is having to drink the awful tasting cough syrup. <laughs> Actually, my least favorite part is being sick. The naps, the soap operas, the, the, I can handle you that. You can handle that. Nevertheless, there is a drug that comes in many tasty forms, and I'm speaking, of course, about marijuana. Oh, a different sort of drug, though. Yes. Here in California, weed is legal for medical use, and at many dispensaries, you can buy it in edible form. You can get cookies laced with weed. You can get weed brownies. At least, so you're told, right? That's right. This is news to us. Yeah. Anyway, it got us thinking, who makes all that stuff? And what is it like to cook with weed? So the other day I met up with Melanie Lusk. She's the owner of Red Eye Bakery, a completely legal operation that supplies edibles to dispensaries. And I asked her how she started. Um, I was working at a dispensary, and one of the guys that I worked with was doing it, but he was only like 20 years old and wanted to have a life. And so I was like, hey, Melanie, do you want to do it? He only made muffins. And I started making cookies and crispy treats and like pretty much anything. You know, I've made like little cheesecakes before and stuff like that as well. Are you using marijuana as flavor enhancer or is your job to sort of mask the flavor? For me, too much does not taste good. So I mask the flavor. I put like extra chocolate syrup. And because I use hash instead of buds, you can't taste it so much because it's a concentrated form. What is the flavor profile of this stuff? I think it kind of has like an earthy taste to it. So you don't really want that in something like a brownie. Well, if you were, you know, maybe... Like I was just going to say bar. mushrooms are earthy, but uh, yes, you don't get mushroom brownies. Yeah, you don't get mushroom brownies. Exactly. Maybe if you're making pasta sauce, it would be good. But in a cookie you don't, or a brownie, you don't really want that. This food you're making is basically basically a delivery system for medication. Does that change the way you cook? Uh, the only thing I do differently is that I add butter instead of oil because it has a higher fat content. THC sticks to the fat. So the more fat, the like better potency. <laughs> so interestingly, you're making a product for health, but you're sort of making it less healthy by putting more butter in it. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on if your concern is high cholesterol. I probably wouldn't eat my brownies. And I was always, when I worked at the dispensary, I got to work hands-on with the patients. And that was a big concern of theirs. So I started making extra strength mini edibles. So you could have like a brownie in one bite. So they'd have higher concentration of the active ingredient, shall we say, but a little less fat. Exactly. Man. Um, but do you have a background in cooking? You know, I've just always loved to cook and being a mom, I guess. But I've been cooking since I was like eight years old. My mom was a really bad cook and I didn't like bad food. So immediately I had to decide I was going to cook on my own. Is she aware of what you're doing? Um, yeah, my mom knows and yeah, my whole family knows. Um, she, my mom actually has multiple sclerosis and um, eats my brownies from time to time. Wow. Now that is amazing. Food is kind of the ultimate way to sort of sustain your family. And now you've got this sort of like extra level of sustaining. Definitely. And actually for a little while, my brother and my sister-in-law were struggling and she started coming over and baking for me. So it's also helped my brother pay his bills too. How, how many times, by the way, speaking of baking, how many times a day do people make that pun? <laughs> All the time, actually. And what's something that's funny is if I ever try and bake stuff that has no marijuana in it, everybody asks me first, is this medicated? <laughs> I'm like, no, of course it's not medicated. Why would I bring medicated cupcakes to a party? There are some parties where that would be welcome. Yes, but, you know, Fourth of July with a family, I usually don't bring medicated cupcakes. So, Rico, I have to ask, yes. did you get any samples? Good question. Uh, yes, I am not legally allowed to consume them. <laughs> so uh, I left them on my desk. Wait, those things that were your desk today? Yes, why? Um... I think we should hurry up and finish the show before I start to feel happy and content. And the baker will come. And the baker I'll be. 
<laughs> and that's the dinner party download for this week. Thanks to Jackson Musker. And we leave you as always with One for the Road, a tune to play on your way to or departing from this weekend's dinner party. This week, the song is called Coming Through. The band is called, appropriately enough, The War on Drugs. And it's from their pending album, Future Weather, due out in October. Bon appetit. I've been trying just to hold it through this rattly road. Spent some time in a common place in everyone who'd been burned like a thousand tires, just wasted away. Then Galliano. And um fine. Just fine. Thanks. Brendan forgot to remind you to contribute at dinnerpartydownload.org. I did not. <laughs>